This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things you can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December the 2nd, 2021, and this is episode 2,993, which means by my calculations, we won't quite hit episode 3,000 next week. I think the way that should work out is we should end next week at... Twenty nine ninety nine. Dang it. Anyway, I just I I like things to come together. I like numeric patterns, man. Anyway, um, we are following our regularly scheduled programming pattern today with the expert council Q and A show. Remember, you can always find all of our experts by going to any expert council show with the show notes and see them all listed. All their websites listed down there. You can also go to the about tab. At thesurvivalpodcast.com or tspc.co if you don't want to type out the full domain name. Yes, it's cool. You should try it just to see if it works. Can you really make a website work without the com? You can. tspc.co will take you right to the Survival Podcast for all of our stuff. And you can go to the About tab, and under there you'll see Meet the Expert Council. And you can see all the wonderful people who are willing to answer your questions and send them to me. Jock at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC expert in the subject line. Again, TSPC, like it's a word, TSPC expert in the subject line. So when it gets sent into the, the hell that is the spam folder, I will be able to dig it out and find it because I do not go through my 18 bazillion spams a, a week. I run filters to check for things that unfairly get put in there. And that's one of the things I look for. TSPC. And then expert tells me what it's for. This is what we got today. Ron Paul's Liberty Highlights. We're going to hear from three members over there. Dr. Paul himself talking about the danger when voluntary interaction is replaced with force. Dan McAdams over there will talk about the insane overreaction to the Omicron variant, or as I call it, the moronic variant. If you have not paid attention to this, Omicron is an anagram for moronic. And boy, is that perfect here. They skipped over the the Z, right? The Z uh, variant in, in the in the Greek alphabet. Hmm. I wonder why. Dan's not going to talk about that, but he's going to talk about the insane overreaction. And then Chris Rossini over there will talk about trusting people versus trusting power. People earn your trust individually. Power does no need to earn your trust. We'll hear what Chris has to say on that. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about eating a proper human diet, aka a keto diet. Uh, and meat in particular, when you don't have a gallbladder, everybody knows that's not possible. It actually is. There's a, and I learned something here. I, I did not know this. There's, there's just, it's basically just a procedure over time. If you've lost your gallbladder, that let, will let you eat all the meat you want in time if you follow it. Dr. Ken will talk to us about that. Paul Wheaton from the Miles of Mon, uh, Wilds, Miles, the Wilds of Montana. We'll talk about the new uh, Bartrell's Buck Bunkhouse Rocket Mass Heater, uh, and there'll be a tribute to uh, a longtime listener and community member of the Survival Podcast uh, in why it's called Bartrell's Bunkhouse. Uh, the right animals for a small homestead's livestock. I know you're thinking chickens. I already tried that. There's a reason I won't give it to you now, but no chickens, no birds. And this went to Darby Simpson with a whole bunch of restrictions, a whole bunch of things that can't be. But while Darby Simpson does not 
call himself a permaculturist. In my view, he is. He's also an engineer. And if you want to design to be elegant, as, as my, you know, my all-time favorite mentor in permaculture, Jeff Lawton, says, the more restrictions upon the design, the more eloquent the design, if the designer is good at his task. Let's see how Darby does with a whole bunch of design restrictions here. What about wood stoves for a mobile home? You fool! It'll burn down! No, it won't. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about that. Homeschooling for teens that are transitioning from non-homeschool to homeschool environment. It's one thing to homeschool a kiddo that has been homeschooled their whole life. They grow up, they get old enough to start learning, you start them down a learning path, and it just comes natural. What if they've been in the system, they're coming out of the system, and you want to set up a curriculum for them and a way to manage and handle things? Amy Dingman from A Farmer's Kind of Life will talk about that. And I'm going to finish up with what is your mission on Earth and why it matters. And that's based on our quote of the day. I'll give you the quote now, and I'll talk about it again when I get to my segment Here is the test to find whether your mission on earth is finished. If you're alive, it isn't. Richard Bach, and I believe that was in the Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah, also known as Illusions. And if you've ever wondered where I've gotten the phrase from, if you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet, that's the redneck version of Mr. Bach's eloquent quote. So we'll be talking about that today. Before we start off and hear from Ron Paul's team, I just want to remind you up front today, hey, Have you ever thought about becoming a member of my member support brigade? If you haven't, please think about it, because if you like this show, it's the number one way I'm able to do it. I've been doing this show for 13 years now. I've made it my life's work, my full-time investment of my time and my talent and my energy. I put more effort into doing this podcast than I do anything else in the world, and I do it because I believe it impacts lives and it makes people's lives a little bit better. And I am able to do that because of our voluntary willingness to share value for value in the MSB. Now, what is the MSB? Well, you decide I like what Jack's doing. I don't want him to go away, so you join. It's 50 bucks a year. Then there's a bunch of discounts. Use a few of them. You'll get your money back. It's painless. I designed it that way. I didn't want it to be like PBS. You give me $100, bucks, I give you a $2 coffee mug. I didn't want that. I wanted to be able to do value for value exchange. So consider that. If you've been a member in the past, consider coming back to, to, to the MSB. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, first responder, anything like that, you can email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line before, not after you join, and I'll give you a discount to thank you for your service. With that, let's go ahead and uh, hear... From Dr. Ron Paul's team, again, Dr. Paul on the danger when voluntary interaction is replaced with force, Dan McAdams on the insane overreaction to Omicron, and Chris Rossini on trusting people versus trusting power. So, uh, but right now, those in, in charge, and sometimes I think some people who are supposed to be in charge, and they might have a public position that they are in charge, they might not really be in charge, you know, who, who's really pulling the strings. And uh, sometimes there's a lot of people who question the fact of whether or not uh, the president is really up to speed on all this. But nevertheless, in his name, these regulations are pushed back and it's restrictions. And, you know, it just was because they violate a basic rule of liberty, and that is in a free society, interaction between individuals socially and economically should be done voluntarily by both sides. What a simple little test that would have solved a lot of problems in this monstrosity that we've been dealing with for the past two years. 
I never expected that tomorrow we're going to have a magic wand and, you know, everything's going to be okay and we're all going to love freedom. But I also know that if we don't have the principles in our mind and we don't have a goal and that the principle doesn't exist of what liberty is all about and how important truth is, uh, you know, it can be a pretty, pretty uh, bad world to live in. Well, you know, just over Thanksgiving weekend, you know, just as people were settling down and settling into uh, digesting their turkey, of course, there was this massive uh, explosion across the world. The Omicron variant has emerged. And, of course, it sounds like a villain out of maybe a James Bond movie or something. Uh, so many people have noted that the anagram uh, for Omicron is moronic. Uh, and that's probably more apt. But it, as you're, you're right, Dr. Paul, it caused an enormous scare. The market crashed, uh, and the usual suspects uh, started screaming for lockdowns. The U.K. blocked anyone from Africa from coming to the U.K. Israel, which has been absolutely insane this whole time, blocked everyone from coming to the country. Nobody can come, even though they're, you know, 150% vaccinated with four or five boosters, whatever they have. No, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. So there was a massive, massive scare. And as you say, Africa, which has not experienced COVID deaths like the rest of the world, despite being only 6% vaccinated, found itself the pariah of the universe because they discovered it in South Africa. Interestingly enough, the first two patients were both fully vaccinated who had this so-called variant. Um, but here's something interesting, and I'll just leave it at this, Dr. Paul, as an opener, is Angelique Coetzee. Uh, she's the chairwoman of the South African Medical Association, right? She's a medical doctor, chairperson of their association. She said, hang on a minute. Uh, we discovered it. I discovered it. I reported it. But she said the new Omicron variant results in mild disease without prominent symptoms. Here's what she said. It presents mild disease with symptoms being sore muscles and tiredness for a day or two, not feeling well. That's basically all they've had. They haven't admitted anyone into the hospital. She said it could change, but what we're looking at right now is not such a big deal. Why is everyone freaking out over it? The best advertiser uh, for liberty, I wish it was libertarians, but it isn't. It's the government itself, you know, what it does and all of its failures as it just keeps piling on one on top of another on top of another, ultimately the people reach a point where they won't take it anymore. It just comes too close to home, and that's it. They've had enough. You know, and it's it's tough as libertarians, especially Dr. Paul, since he be, he went into Congress in the 70s, telling people, you know, we don't have to go down this road. You don't have to be okay with this, with the money printing, with the wars, with the interventions everywhere. But, you know, it is part of human nature to be trusting, which in and of itself is a good thing. We have to trust when we go to eat in a restaurant. We have to trust who's cooking it. We have to trust in the, in the products that we buy, that they're not going to fall apart. Uh, but it's so it's a good thing, but it's never a good thing to trust people in power. Because it's it's very different than when you're dealing with people voluntarily. And people in power, they will deceive you, just as they have done. Look at what they have said over these two years. And they just keep going, one deception after another, one lie after another, without stopping, with no regrets on what they said in the past, just go on to the next one. 
So ultimately, the misery will hit so hard that people will have enough. And at that time, the time will be ripe for the ideas of liberty to take hold and gain the upper hand. And, uh, you know, let's all do our part to help bring that about. Definitely. All things worth considering there uh, from Dr. Paul's team as usual. I, I especially want to hone in real quick on the voluntary interaction being replaced with force that Dr. Paul led off with. To me, this is the single biggest problem that we have in the world today. As soon as you give somebody the ability to use force to implement what they want, well, they're going to use it. And they're going to cease using logic and reason to explain it. And as soon as that happens, the next breakdown is, since we're not using logic and reason to explain it, even if the, the, the action starts out with being the correct action, it will mutate in time, kind of like a virus, and become malicious. And since there is no need to have public discussion about it, open, rigorous, academic debate, as I've been calling for since this shit started 19 months ago now, or 20 months ago now, whatever the hell it is. I've been calling for rigorous, open, academic debate, and we don't have it. That is what happens when force replaces voluntarism, period. That's always the result. There's a dude, I'm trying to get him on the show, his name is Steve Kirsch, He's put together a consortium. He has over $5 million in this consortium. He has offered people like Tony Fauci the ability to come out and publicly debate him in an organized debate about things like vaccine efficacy, like the efficacy of early treatments, etc. He's offered this to Deborah Bricks, right, Miss Ascot Scarf Lady. He's offered this to all the people out there running their mouths about what needs to be done. He's offered a million dollars here. He offered, say, up to five people can get $200,000 apiece. He threw the whole five million at Gavin Newsom and said, come out and prove that you didn't have a vaccine industry. No one's taking him up on it. You can't get somebody to do it for a million to five million dollars. And he said, hey, you know what? If you think it's a conflict of interest, I'll give the money... I'll give the money to the charity of your choosing. And they still won't do it. They're afraid of debate, but they're able to stand behind the shield of force and power. If you take away the force of shield and power, you don't need money to bribe the debate. You have no, you have no choice but to debate in the theater of ideas. And that's what's been robbed from humanity. That's the real sin of all of these agencies of government and all of these entities in the so-called private sector, this fascist coalition of media and government, the real sin that they've created in, in stomping on free speech is less my right to say it and more your right to hear it. This is why I'm glad we have this formal relationship now with Dr. Paul and his team because it leads to things like this. There's your liberty thoughts for the day. Let's move on to a proper human diet. I love that Dr. Ken Berry has stopped calling it keto or carnivore and started calling it the proper human diet. When he was here at the workshop last month, people were like, but what if this and what if that? He's like, are you a human? Yeah, well, then you should eat the proper human diet. But there are things that happen that maybe it's not so easy. One would be you have some real bad problem in your life where they have to go in and cut a hole in you and you ain't got a thing called your gallbladder. Now, the gallbladder produces certain things that enable us to digest meat well. It's actually a really good case 
for the fact that humans have evolved to eat meat and fat. But it's gone now. So surely you can't eat meat, or is there something you need? Is there anything you can do? Turns out, yes, there is. Did you know you can make, like, almost like you have little bitty gallbladders all throughout your body? Does that sound crazy? Does that sound insane? You shouldn't trust me. I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. But we're going to hear from the doctor now. Dr. Ken, take it away. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Stacy. Stacy's a 35-year-old woman with a healthy uh, body mass index and no health conditions other than some psoriasis. She had her gallbladder removed during her first pregnancy 15 years ago. Afterwards, she was told to avoid eating pork and to take a daily probiotic. Uh, she's taken the probiotic, and occasionally she eats bacon from time to time. Uh, starting five years ago, she started taking some bile salts to help digest fat. The bile salts help, but not a lot, and I'm still not able to eat some types of pork and many cuts of red meat. My husband and I have been making the move to keto over the past month, and has uh, her husband's lost 32 pounds, sleeps better, feels better, and has much more energy. While I'm happy with my weight, the sleep and energy benefits sound amazing, so I tried it too. I quickly discovered that I cannot seem to eat that much meat without stomach pains after. Please, any suggestions? I like meat and would love to, to be able to consume more in my diet. I don't really eat much processed foods in my diet anyway. Haven't for most of my adult life, if that would help narrow things down. So, Stacy, you're absolutely right that a diet filled with fatty meat is, is part of a proper human diet, even for you without a gallbladder. What you're going to have to do, Stacy, is you're going to have to slowly increase the amount of fatty meat that you include in your diet. Without a gallbladder, you're not going to be able to go all in uh, and eat as much meat as you want. You're going to have to slowly ramp up your meat intake. Uh, it's not that just going all in on meat would be in any way dangerous, but you may wind up having some stomach pain, some nausea, or some diarrhea if you if you increase your meat percentage too quickly. The function of the human gallbladder is to store bile, but also to concentrate bile. And taking the bile salts, I know, has helped your symptoms, but what you may never have been told by a doctor is that after you have your gallbladder removed, if you continue to eat fatty meat, like bacon and other fatty cuts, your the, the bile ducts in your liver will actually dilate, and they will take on a not just a transport function, but also a storage function as well. And so it's like you've got multiple little gallbladders in your bile ducts that can ultimately store and concentrate the bile just like your gallbladder used to, but you're, you're going to have to do this slowly. And if I were you, I would wean down the bile salts slowly, maybe over a month. I would take less and less and less because your liver is still able to do this, but you basically you've been using the bile salts as a crutch. And so your liver hasn't had to really take on this function because you're introducing exogenous bile salts in your diet. So slowly ramp up your meat intake over maybe a three-month period. Go very slowly. And maybe once a week increase your daily meat consumption by one ounce. And that's going to give your liver not only the stimulus to increase its storage function and increase its production function, but also... Uh, it's going to give it time to get used to that. And so you're not going to suffer from symptoms as much, and ultimately you'll be able to eat just as much fatty meat as your husband and be able to gain all of the tremendous health benefits 
from a ketogenic or a carnivore diet. Hope this helps. Thanks a lot, guys. This is Dr. Barry signing out. Yeah, I, I did not know that. And I just want to throw out a, a thank you to Ken that he, I don't think he got to hear. I think he had left. He had to leave a day early at the workshop. He had a commitment he couldn't get out of in Memphis. Um, but when I thanked everybody, I mentioned Ken this way and I said, you know, because of some of my past studies in life and a path that I was taking for a while in, 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 in naturopathic medicine when I was a very young man and decided not to continue down it, um, I have a different view into medicine than a lot of people do and a different view into the word doctor. And if you go back, to like to the time of Hippocrates, you know, like patient heal thyself and first do no harm and all, all that stuff, and you go forward even hundreds and hundreds of years, When you, when you went to someone who was a doctor, they were first and foremost a teacher. That's what the word actually is, is to be a teacher. Patient, heal thyself. So you would go to a doctor for things like, I don't feel good. Well, here's how to change your diet so that you'll feel good. Here's how to relax more, or things like that. That's what a doctor or a physician did. If you had, like, I don't know, gotten in a fight and got a big slice in your arm and you needed somebody to try to do whatever they could with what they had at the time so that you wouldn't die or to put it back together, they didn't refer to that person as a doctor. They referred to them as a surgeon or whatever you know the local word for that, 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 that word would be, a surgeon. A surgeon was the person that bodily fixed the damage. And that's still even true today, except doctors today are less teachers and more prescription writers. Ken is an amazing man, guys. Those of you who have never had the chance to get to meet him, he is, he is, one thing I love about Ken Berry, he is like me in that when you meet me, if you've ever met me, you know I am the same man hanging out on my back porch drinking a beer with you that I am on the microphone or in front of a camera. So is Ken. And one thing I've learned in spending time with Ken in recent years is that Ken feels terrible about being part of the system that's killing people in his past. And he made the switch from a doctor as a prescription writer to a doctor as a teacher. And we need more of our doctors to do that. It's not that there's no place for any drugs ever, but we should start first with that. And I just appreciate that Ken's part of the expert council. And the reason I bring that up is in this case, Ken taught me something. I had no idea what you just heard from him was even possible. That basically you could train your body to adapt to the absence of a gallbladder. Simply by throttle it back and slowly increase it. I had no idea. And you wonder, this person that has this problem that I'm sure went to a doctor, why the hell their doctor didn't spend time as doctor as a teacher and spend writing a prescription for something to compensate for the inadequacy? Crazy, isn't it? Anyway, next up, Paul Wheaton from the wilds of Montana talking about Bartrell's bunkhouse and rocket mass heaters. And there's a bit, a little bit of a tribute to a listener in here that I had, I had no idea about. And uh, so I'll let Paul and uh, his friend here tell us about it. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. And so I'm here today with Gray, who's in our boot camp. Uh, say hi, Gray. Hello. Hi. I'm Gray. I've been here for between two and three months now in the boot camp. Yeah. And as uh, part of that time, um, 
Because one of the things we offer is a bit of a work trade. You can come and be in the boot camp for a certain amount of time, and then you can go to one of our events. And you elected to cash in your coupon to go to the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree. I sure did. It was great. Yeah, I didn't really know much about Rocket Mass Heaters before, but now I feel like I could probably help to build one and not be uh, detrimental. Oh, oh okay. Uh, so you don't think you could build one on your own? Well, you know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. In a, in a pickle, in a pinch, uh-huh. you could probably, you know. Okay, all right, uh-huh. all right. Because um, it was nine days long. You participated the entire nine days. And, um, uh, you know, I know that the one that in Bartell's bunkhouse, you did a lot of work in because that's where you've been staying. Yeah, so I helped uh, kind of, like, get the materials there, clean it up before the build. And now, after the three full days in the event of building there, I'm left to finish it, which I've been doing in my spare time and also with the help of some other boots. Okay. Just real quick, Bartell's Bunkhouse is named after Warren Bartell, uh, somebody who's been a big contributor to all of our projects here. And um, I think it's fair to say, just a quick shout out, He's he was a listener. I think he may have listened to all of Jack's podcasts, and he died a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I've only listened to a few hundred of Jack's. You know, there's... There's a lot. I try to just choose ones that look interesting. But um, before I came here, I was trying to get through as many of yours as I could. But I've been a listener on and off to both of you guys for like seven years. Well, and Jack's got a lot more podcasts than I do. I I think that when I did my first podcast with Jack... I think that he hadn't hit 600 yet, and that's I haven't hit 600 yet. So, uh, but all right, any, move, moving along, Bartell's bunkhouse. It's a pretty small space, yeah, it's, and it's it had small. no heat, which is a little awkward for Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this will be its first little heat source in that structure. Yeah, I fired it up a few times so that the heat heating system works well and everything. You know, there's a problem with the cold plug because. It is like still going through this mass of wet cob still, so yeah. it's cold. <laughs> it's gonna, it's it's not gonna quite get started great just yet because the cob is still kind of wet. Ooh, ooh, we should talk about what is cob. What, what gray is cob? It is a natural building material made with sand, clay, and straw, okay. and it's you just put it into these loafs and then slap it on, make a wall, make an arch, you know, make a floor. And, yeah, it does a lot. It's versatile. Okay. Um, and then uh, did we just pop on down to the Home Depot in order to be able to get those materials, the, the sand and the clay and the straw? No, we didn't. We sourced them locally. Okay. And, uh, yeah, the uh, clay came from a spot on the lab. The sand came from the pit on base camp called Arrakis. And the straw, um, that might have been, you know, gleaned off your personal uh, stash of hay. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! <laughs> I wasn't there, so I, I can't say for sure. There's but, other things you could yeah. have used for the, instead of the, my my special private stash of straw. Yeah. But uh, okay, all right, mm-hmm. all right. I would. Uh, and that, then of yeah. course our little sand pit out there that we call Arrakis. It's kind of fitting because tonight we're all going to gather in my office to watch Dune. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> but okay, and then we've got like several different forms of clay. We had a gal here that was a ceramics person, and she was proving that our uh, one of the kinds of clay that we have here is really excellent for ceramics. And so we did a, a we kind of made a little uh, slapdash kiln and baked some clay. It was pretty cool. Um, all right. So uh, the, the neat thing is, is that this place, my place, happens to be kind of a little bit of a 
natural builder's paradise mm -hmm. uh, because there's, most natural building sites are missing something and you have to go buy it. But um, we've got uh, several different kinds of sand, several different kinds of clay, and we have oodles and oodles and oodles of logs. Uh, in order to um, reduce uh, wildfire danger, we have to take some out and so and build things with them. Yeah, and that's a great use for them. I like also there, like with your two separate properties, you get two very different environments. And if you're missing something, you can probably go get get it from the other one. If, yeah. If, yeah. Base camp is really good for rocks. Lots of rocks, yeah. <laughs> Lots of rocks. <laughs> Everything else is at the lab. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, okay, we're going to make a six-inch rocket mass heater. We got it, yep. Yeah. It's made, it's in. And, uh, yeah, the 16-gallon, 120-pound grease can barrel came from the old Red Cabin rocket mass heater. Okay. That was repurposed and is now in the bunkhouse. Okay. So, um, I think that um, uh, the rocket mass heater that we're building inside of Bartel's bunkhouse, um, it's going to, because the cob is still wet and because um, the door is being left open a lot because people are coming and going to build things, that means that the temperature inside is currently about the same as the temperature outside, which is going to be a cold plug. A rocket mass heater is an extremely efficient system, but it's Achilles heel is when the outside temperature is the same or warmer than inside when you try to stay it. When you start, try to start it, that's when we get the cold plug problem. Yes, because there's a massive cold air in the vertical part where the exhaust would come out, and that has some, you know, staying power. When you try to heat it up at the feed tube, mm -hmm. the cold air is kind of pushing back. And so one way it seems like pretty good way to solve that is to start a fire under that cold air, which is usually like all the way at the end of your mass. And it just so happens that the bench in the bunkhouse that is being done has a cap for like at a T-junction to reach in and yeah. I could start a fire there. I think yeah, I'll do that. And, and, and prime that part prime a little it, bit. Yeah. I mean, the way a rocket mass heater really thrives is, um, if you are keeping your home warm, so like here in the Fisher Price House, it seems like this time of year we're lighting a fire every four or five days. But then when we do light a fire, it's like 68 inside and outside it's 30. Yeah. And and so um, it's like then, then the rocket mass heater starts great. But if you're in any structure where the, the, the two temperatures are really close together or the outside temperature is actually warmer... That's when a rocket mass heater does not do well because uh, you get the immediate heat and then the leftover heat gets pushed through the mass and the mass will then cool that exhaust to roughly whatever the room temperature is. Um, and in the case of having a cold cob there or, or a wet cob, it'll be even cooler. And the fact that it is a berm house, would you call it? Um, it, uh, uh, sure, let's call it that. Because it's not a wafati. It's not a wafati. I've heard somebody described as a wampty. <laughs> it's like monthly thermal inertia, not annualized thermal inertia. So okay. it's like, yeah. So this was this is part of the Ant Village project. So somebody built this as you know their own little experiment, and then each person comes along and makes it a little bit better. And then when they go, then the next person goes in and they make it a little better, and so on. And so, in fact, this is a great time to ask you: Why are you putting so much work into a thing you do not own? Um. I looked around and nobody else was really offering the deal that you have here. And in boot camp, it's a it's a pretty good deal. Like 
You know, I feel like I have lots of free time to do projects that interest me. And, you know, the the overlap between things I want to do and things Paul wants done, it's actually quite substantial. So that's good. Okay. That's the space to play in here. So now you, you've been here um, almost three months. And um, how long do you plan on being here? Oh, at least another year. Yeah, I don't. I don't plan far ahead, so that's saying a lot. Yeah. So, so the torture that you've been put through hasn't been that bad. No, okay. no, but winter's coming. Welcome, welcome to our cult, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Glad to be here. Uh, all right, I think that's it, Jack. Thanks. You know, um, great, great information on uh, the rocket mass heater and, and things like that. But I just wanted to pause a second and recognize. Uh, Mr. Bartrell, who I never met, never met. I'll never remember hearing from him. Apparently listened to every episode of TSP there ever was. And I guess one of the things about having longevity in anything that builds community around it is the longer you're around, the more members of our community are going to end their time in this plane that we exist in that we call Earth and present space-time and transition to whatever's next. And so... It's a sad thing, but it's also part of our journey on Earth. And just think about that for when I get to my anchor segment today and I ask you, what's your mission on Earth? With that, got a, uh, a complex one for Darby Simpson. Folks have had uh, chickens in the past, had some dietary issues with eggs. I'm going to speak to that when this is over. And uh, now they want to try livestock again, but they don't want any birds. And they threw a bunch of other restrictions at Darby. Darby, what do you got here? Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life, back to answer another question that came in via email. Uh, and if you would like to get a question like this answered in 10 minutes or less, shoot me your question, darby at grassfedlife.co, and you might just hear it on the podcast, just like this message that I got um, from Matt. And this is, a, this is a challenging one, but that's okay. I like a challenge. So... His question is, if chickens are the gateway drug for homesteading with animals, what is the next animal you would suggest someone get? Here are some details. I just had to get rid of my flock of 30 egg-laying chickens for the really small possibility that a couple of my kids were reacting to them. I'm interested in getting another type of animal to raise for food. Here are some of the restrictions I'm working with. No birds for the time being, until he can prove it wasn't the chickens. I'm just starting to recover from over a decade of struggling with some depression and anxiety and fatigue. Doing much better, but still trying to uh, get my strength and confidence back up. So he wants this to be successful. Uh, his family had chickens when he was a kid. But outside of some domestic pets, that's his only experience with animals. Works a full-time job, so he's got limited time each day. Has a total of six acres, but only about an acre and a half is a cleared field. I wouldn't even call it a pasture. Some grass and clover, but a lot of wildflowers, etc. His wife doesn't want anything too close to the house, so realistically it's uh, closer to three quarters of an acre to be used for animals. I would like to clear more land, but have not had the time animals machinery to do so. I have nearly zero infrastructure. A rusted roll of some kind of fencing in the woods, an old shed, maybe mostly full of junk. And I doubt I could put more than $1,500 into animals and infrastructure and would prefer as little as possible to get started than build up over time. It's located in Maine. 
We eat a lot of pork and beef, but I'm open to other options. Thanks in advance. Well, Matt, we've got a lot of restrictions here, but that's okay because I've actually got a couple of suggestions for you. Now, budget always comes into anything we contemplate, particularly with livestock, because we can spend a lot of money really quick. And you don't have any infrastructure to work with. Now, you know, the most logical thing for most people in this situation would probably be pork. We can buy a few rolls of electro netting and a portable, uh, you know, solar charger or even if you wanted to set up a, a wired charger and, and run power out to your, your pasture slash woods, which would actually be better for pigs. Um, we can get that system set up pretty inexpensively. We could definitely get, you know, say two pigs and some fence, charger, hose for water, build a piggy drinking deck like we talk about at Grass-Fed Life, um, and all the things, and probably even buy most of the feed and finish out those two hogs. Um, could put one in the freezer. You could maybe... Sell one or barter the, you know, barter the other one, or maybe you got a big cam, uh, family, you got a bunch of kids, maybe you want to keep both pigs. If you want to try pigs, I would say definitely get two, maybe even three, just in case something happens to one of them. You've got the space, you've got the funds, um, and, you know, the great part about pork is you're basically going to offset a lot of that, that first cost with the food you put in the freezer, and then particularly if you sell one, like you're going to pay that infrastructure back. Not, you know, it's not going to take very much time to recoup those costs. Here's what I'll say about pigs based on one piece of personal context that you listed, and that was your struggle with fatigue and anxiety. Pigs can be a little unnerving. Really, it it kind of depends on where you're at right now. Um, they're not terrible, particularly if you've only got a couple. Um, but you know, there there was a time years ago where you know pigs really stressed me out a lot, uh, just because we had so many of them. We had we had a big near miss one time where 32 animals that were two weeks from going to the butcher almost got out uh, because of a storm and a tree. And some of that temporary fence that I just mentioned you might want to purchase. So that can be kind of stressful. And you also have to think about, I need a livestock trailer. I can probably borrow or rent one. I got to have a truck. I can probably borrow or rent one if I don't already have one. But there's a lot that goes into that. You know, in, in this situation, Honestly, I think something like rabbits would probably be a really good option for you um, because the cost is less. They're not big and scary. They can't hurt anybody. There are multiple designs online for rabbit tractors um, that you can move around out in your pasture area. Uh, you could even raise them in hutches if you really wanted to. You can dispatch them right there on the farm and... You know, I think there's a lot of advantages. Um, 
So I would encourage you to look into that. I think something else you might want to think about might be some kind of aquaculture with fish or what have you. Obviously, you're too far north to do anything like Jack does with his shrimp in his little ponds uh, because he's way down south. But you could do some aquaculture. You could put in a small pond if you wanted to. You could do tanks if you have a, a small greenhouse for starting plants or overwintering plants, growing greens in the winter, whatever. I think that that's another good option. And those are some, you know, kind of out-of-the-box things uh, coming from the perspective of grass-fed life, which is, you know, farming for profit. But when we're talking about, you know, a homestead animal and a way to raise some high-quality food and have some sustainability in our food production at home and something that's small, easy to handle, easy to clean, provides a really quick turnaround on our investment, I think these are the options I would probably look at. And... Maybe once you you get through raising some rabbits, for instance, you could graduate to a pig, right? And I don't mean to stress you out with thinking about pigs. They can just be a little unruly. I mean, you know, pig-headed, trust me, uh, has its roots in the attitudes that some pigs can give you. But I've had pigs literally that were like dogs that would follow me around, snorting at me, wanting their ears scratched, wanting their bellies rubbed. You can get good pigs, too, that are very docile, very easygoing. But I just think maybe with where you're at, starting with something that's smaller and and less scary and less stressful, especially if you're gone working, you know, I mean, gosh, what kind of damage can a rabbit or a fish do if you're not home to deal with them and your wife or your children need to go work with them? It's also a great way for them to get involved. So that would be my advice. And thanks for sending this question because this really made me think. Because typically we say birds, right? We say poultry. They really are the the gateway drug to homesteading with livestock or farming for profit with livestock. So thinking outside of the box a little bit, it's a very good exercise for me. So Matt, thanks for sending this one in. For everybody else listening to this, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you found it helpful If you want to learn more about me or Grassfed Life, check us out at grassfedlife.co. We've got a lot of resources out there, and we've got some stuff in the works for some new resources that will be coming, hopefully, Q1 of 2022. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, check us out, grassfedlife.co. There are free resources out there. We've got a free uh, mini farming course. It's like six or seven hours long. There's a lot of good information in it, some free guides and things of that nature. And, of course, If you're like Matt here and you're thinking, hey, maybe I want to do pigs, we've got a homestead pig course. It's a whopping 39 bucks. We've got one on poultry, same price, to help you get started on your journey to independence and raising some meat for your family. Again, thanks for sending this question in. If you've got one you'd like answered, shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co. As always, everyone have a wonderful day and take care. So the only thing I'm not really clear on is what the reaction was. Like, there's some sort of allergic reaction, or whether it was it to the product, is in the egg of the chickens in the first place, or 
to the birds themselves by being around birds, like they're allergic to birds, like bird dust or something. I, I'm not sure there, but I, I would just always add in to what Darby said. Anybody who ever seems like they're having a reaction to eggs to, and obviously use very small amounts as you test your tolerance, try using eggs from birds that are not fed soy. We have had so many of our customers with our ducks that that's exactly what their problem was. And they're like, you know, I tried duck eggs before. Well, where'd you get them? Well, it was organic. That's not the point, right? It can be organic soy. It's still soy. It's still full of isoflavin. So that would be another thing I'd look at. And then I'm just not sure how a person has an allergic reaction to chickens unless they're spending time like in the chicken coop. I just, I, because if you had a reaction to bird, I mean, there's birds everywhere. I'm, I'm just not clear on that. Anyway, just think about some other options there because giving up chickens or poultry in general, I think is a hard thing. If you had not set up that we want to get rid of birds, if just it was just chicken, then I would say probably the single most utility oriented small livestock that can go anywhere, do anything, be anywhere, and provide meat and eggs as a quail. So do with that as you will as well. Uh, next up, we have a question on mobile homes and wood stoves. Will this cause us to die in a sea of flames, or is that FUD? Tim the Toolman Cook on that. Hey guys, Toolman Tim coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Coming back to answer another question for the expert council. So let's dive right in. This week's question comes from email and it says, How would you go about heating a single wide mobile home? Is having a wood stove in a mobile any more dangerous than in a normal house? My wife and I recently got a 1986 mobile home set up on our land and plan to move into it as soon as I can get the utilities hooked up and we finish a few renos. The previous owner told us the gas furnace stopped working and he'd tried to repair it but could still smell gas leaking after replacing some parts. So we turned off the gas and didn't touch it again. We don't have a gas tank set up and I'd prefer to heat with wood anyway. I'm sure getting the furnace fixed and a tank installed would be a good prep but I'm not sure it's in the budget right now. We've heated our home with wood and a couple of plug-in radiators for the last five years, but my wife is concerned about putting a wood stove in a mobile home. Is this something I should be concerned about? Is it a bad idea to put a wood stove in a mobile home? I was thinking that I would make a brick pad for the stove to sit on. Would that be too much weight? Would a stove pad be a better idea? Should I add uh, support under the frame of the house, directly under the stove? So, let me tell you. First off, where I grew up on the East Coast in rural Nova Scotia, it was a common place for every mobile home to have a wood stove. And there was no more house fires there than there was in full-sized houses. So the short answer, in my opinion, <laughs> is they're no more or less dangerous in a mobile home than they are in a full-size home. So the, for the first part, and for the most part, you don't need any special reinforcement as long as your floors are in good shape. Now, where it's from 1986, just check it out. Is there any sag? Does, does it move at all when you jump up and down? When you just place the stove in place, does the floor sag a little? If it does, you probably should put some reinforcement. If it doesn't, you'll be good. Now, bricks do tend to be a little bit cheaper, although not by a whole lot. Uh, and again, if you're a little concerned about weight, a nice stove pad would be awesome. Uh, you know, for those aren't familiar, they're, they tend to be made out of a fireproof material with a thin layer of black metal over top. So I, I prefer those. I like those quite a bit. Now, 
If you're looking at a brand new wood stove, there are specific mobile home approved wood stoves that are available. The quickest way to find them again is to do a search on Home Depot for mobile wood stoves and there's a ton out there. You know, did I know people in the past who used regular wood stoves in mobile homes? Yes, especially the older ones, which tended to be a little more drafty and had a little more air coming in. Now, what does being mobile home approved mean for a wood stove? It basically means that the manufacturer undertook some testing themselves and they're comfortable putting a stamp on the back that says mobile home approved. If you're not sure, there should be a metal plate on the back with it engraved in it. So take that for what it's worth. Also, most manufacturers recommend attaching the stove to the chassis of the trailer, but the only place I can find why that's recommended is if you ever need to move your trailer, they don't want it tipping over. Now, the biggest issue I always had when selling wood stoves for mobile homes was that they required, at least by code, a fresh air intake, which was basically a small, rigid air duct that ran down from the stove and out into the belly and the underbelly of the mobile home. And that was help that basically the reasoning behind that is that most mobile homes tend to be really, really airtight and they need to have some extra fresh air brought in to help the combustion of the mobile home. So that is something to look into. Now, if insurance is an issue, sounds like it might not be, but if it is, be prepared to fight with them a little bit about the idea of a wood stove in a mobile home. Insurance hates wood heat to begin with, and they especially don't like it in mobile homes. So do your, do your due diligence, find out, be prepared to go back and forth with them, find out what their recommendations and requirements are, and then follow it. If not, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, just use, you know, if insurance and code isn't necessarily a concern for you, just use common sense. People have used wood stoves forever and they tended to use common sense. You know, make sure you have a good chimney. If it's close to a wall, use a heat shield. Don't set combustibles on top or near the stove. Have a stove pad under it that extends out a foot or two. So if any, you know, ash or embers fall out, it's going to catch that. But seriously, mobile homes, uh, wood stoves in mobile homes are a safe and efficient way to heat. Like I said, you know, in rural Nova Scotia where I grew up, it was a very common practice, a little less common now, but especially where your mobile home is a little bit older and a little draftier, you're not going to have any more issues with it there than you would in a, you know, a regular size home on a foundation. So yes, I would, hopefully that will help uh, your missus not be quite as nervous about it and, you know, tell her to do some reading online, but you'll find out that, um, you know, a wood stove in a mobile home is a very common practice. So I hope that helps. If you have any follow-up, feel free to send me, um, you know, questions. I love this. I, I heated with wood for the first three decades of my life and I have a ton of experience, you know, felling trees and heating with wood, the whole work. So I'd love to share it. You know, now I live on the prairies with natural gas, not a big deal. So anyway, guys, if you want to know more about who I am and what I do, run by toolmantim.co. That'll have everything. You can add me. I'd love to have you add me on social so we can interact. Send me questions there as well. Send in more questions to Jack through email. And most importantly, if you want to drop by uh, the workshop live, we have two live episodes a week, Thursday and Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern, building a really cool community over there with some really awesome people who love to interact, share their knowledge, ask questions, and just all around have a good time. So guys, 
Thank you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I, I'm just going to add to what Tim said. I've seen a lot of mobile homes in my life. I've seen a few of them burned to the ground. I've seen plenty of them with fireplaces, wood stoves, fireplace inserts, etc. And I've never seen one that burned down because of a wood stove or a fireplace or a fireplace insert. And I mean, when I say I've seen a lot of them, you know, Tim mentioned growing up in Canada, uh, gr you know, growing up a lot of my life in Pennsylvania, um, there's a lot of Pennsylvania that has mobile homes. There's a lot of areas that are not quite, you know, as well off. And you tend to see it. I have nothing against mobile homes. I'm not talking like trailer trash stuff or anything like that. I mean, I had a beautiful mobile home in Arkansas. I loved it. Um, but generally they are more affordable. So you see more of them where there's less affluence. And I don't think there was a person in Pennsylvania that didn't have a, a, a wood stove in their mobile home that I knew. And I will tell you where there were tons of small, like single wides, two bedrooms, etc. They weren't necessarily places people lived. Um, deer camp, bear camp, things like that in the Northeast is a big thing in hunting season. And people would go, they'd call it up county. And man, there were just tons of, uh, you know, mobile homes, travel trails, etc. Like that. And these little, like, you know, trailer park type situations that almost nobody lived in that were there like up in Cameron County and Potter County and stuff like that. And man, every, it, when you were up there in deer, you know, deer camps between Thanksgiving and Christmas, every single chimney was smoking. Every single one. Never saw one burn down. Next up, how about transitioning to homeschooling with teenagers? Hey, TSPers, this is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, and I'm back to answer another question about homeschooling. This question comes from Ken. Ken asked, how do you design a homeschool curriculum to fit the needs and interests of teenage students? He goes on to say, in my work with teens, I often come across the question from parents who are new to homeschooling and want to maintain the necessary studies while also giving their teens what they need to keep their mind activated and interested in what they're learning. Where is the dividing line between letting them jump from topic to topic, exploring everything that happens to capture their attention, and keeping them focused and moving forward on the things that will help them create a life they actually enjoy living? And that question was from Ken. All right, Ken, I have a million different ways that I could take this question, but I'm, I'm just going to pick one and I'm going to go with it. Uh, first of all, you say that you often talk to parents who are new to homeschooling and they have older kids. So that brings a bit of difference into the answer when we're talking about teens. But I, I will say that those teen years can also be a time for even long-term homeschoolers to kind of start freaking out like, oh my gosh, now what we're doing matters now. There's kind of this belief out there that once you get to those teenage years or those high school years, like now what we're doing for school matters. And so if, if that's kind of what you're freaking out about, you have to make sure to not fall into that, that frame of thinking because everything you've always done with your kids matters. You know, what they were learning when they were four mattered, what they learned when they're 10 mattered. It's, it's not different when they get to be 14. It's not that it matters now. It's that it still matters. So here's what I'd say. If, if you've got uh, kids that you're going to homeschool now and you're new to homeschooling, you've got teens and you're trying to figure out, okay, how, how, do we, how do we balance what they need to learn with what they want to learn? The first thing I would say is take some time to de-school. It's called de-schooling, which is basically like a school detox. Because here's the thing. Your kid has been told what to do in school for however many years they've been in school. So when you decide to homeschool, give them some time to relax and think about life 
and think about their goals and their future without having all these deadlines that are kind of placed on them in public school. So it's like a school detox because you have to get rid of the residue of public school and all that, that whole thing. You have to get rid of that before you can really jump into the awesomeness of homeschooling and understand what that's going to allow you to do. So when you do that, I mean, your kid is going to jump from thing to thing to thing because they finally can. You know, you decide to homeschool and then they have this freedom to explore something that's interesting to them rather than doing what some person somewhere decided a 13-year-old is supposed to know or a 17-year-old is, 17-year-old is supposed to know, right? They have this freedom, so they're going to explore that. The second thing that I would say, you mentioned being able to maintain necessary studies. And so my question to anybody who is going to be homeschooling, especially those older kids, ask yourself, what are necessary studies? And this is going to depend what state you're living in. This is going to depend on a whole bunch of different stuff. But what are necessary studies as it relates to your family? And I think a a really great way to do this is to sit down and have a conversation with your team. When you decide we're going to homeschool, we're going to do this thing, have a conversation. What are we doing here? Here's my thoughts. I'd love to know your thoughts. Here's what I expect from you as a homeschool student. What are you expecting of yourself from this journey? Have those conversations with your teen, you know, because then you can refer back to them if things get a little bit dicey. But it's good to know what your kids are thinking. What do they want to get out of this experience? What are their future goals? How can you take the freedom of homeschooling and that flexibility and work towards those goals now that they're not being, you know, crushed down by, you know, what the public school is doing? When my kids were homeschooling and they got older, I would say necessary studies for us was math and writing. I require that my kids did math and writing, but everything else was up in the air. That that was their deal to come up with, their deal to say, this is what I want to study, this is what I want to focus on. It was their choice. So they were really into music. My kids are musicians, and so they were big into that. They were big into putting motors into cars. They were big into building stuff. They were spending all their time in the garage. They were working on new recipes in the kitchen. One of my sons really loves to cook, and I was okay with that. Like Those are life skills, and that's great, and they're going to take those things and move forward in their future with that. So necessary studies are probably going to depend on your family who you are as parents, what you expect, like I said, what state you live in and how closely you're going to follow their rules and what your kids' future plans are. You're not going to know any of that unless you sit down and have that conversation with them. So then where is that line between jumping around and keeping them focused and moving forward? That's going to be different for every parent and every kid. And you probably wanted a nice, pat, wonderful answer, but it's really hard to give that answer when we're talking about homeschooling. My way of thinking when my kids were homeschooling is that as long as they're not moving backwards we're doing okay. As long as they're not stagnating, we are doing just fine. And sometimes moving forward in your studies and in your experiences looks different. But as long as you're moving forward, I figured we were doing okay. I think the hardest part about homeschooling those older kids and trying to figure out what to do and and balancing that, you know, here's what we want to learn. Here's what I want you to learn here, you know, making it all work out. I think the hardest part is trusting that they are learning what they need to learn when they're not doing school the way that you probably did. That's really hard to wrap your head around, especially when you are doing something different than everyone else around you. 
is doing. So Ken, I hope that that kind of answered your question. Like I said, there's a million different ways I could have taken that question, but I got to stay in a time frame here. So I hope that was helpful. If you want to talk more about it, you can find me, Amy Dingman, on MeWe or Float, or you can go to my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. And hey, TSPers, I look forward to your questions about homeschooling or parenting or family life on the homestead or anything else you want my two cents about. So send them to Jack so we can get those answered. Have a great day. So before I give my little addition and my little kick again for Excellus, I'm just going to say that I think that anybody doing homeschooling uh, that has their child's interests at heart is probably doing a great job. And that there's there's dozens of ways to do this. And that's actually what kind of overwhelmed Dorothy and I when we decided we were going to start homeschooling our grandchildren. And we were able to get the blessing of our, our son and our daughter-in-law and do that was that we had so much choice. It was hard to pick how we were going to come at this. And in my examination of different options and everything from a very structured program like we're involved with with Excellus to complete lack of structure with unschooling works. It all works. And what ends up happening is the child with a passion for history is going to learn about history. And a child that doesn't care about history, you can, I, I think it's good that we all learn some history. And you can say you got to learn a little bit for perspective, but you will never make them have a passion for history. They're either gonna they're either gonna understand that history is a story and have a passion for stories, or they're not. The the child that's gonna have a passion for science is gonna have a passion for science. The child that's gonna have such a passion for science, they're gonna pursue something in medicine or biochemistry. It's gonna do that. No matter how you do it, they're gonna go down the road. And so I think that our job as as home educators, right? Home educators, because we can be educators too, right? Um, I think our job is to expose them to the possibilities, to make sure that they don't not discover their passion for history because they've never been exposed to it, that they don't not develop their passion for mathematics because they haven't had sufficient exposure to it, but also to accept the fact that there are people that, and I'm with Amy, by the way, man, you are going to learn to read, write, and do math, but how much? Are you going to do advanced calculus? Maybe not. Most of us will never use it, even if we're good at it. And the person with the passion for it is going to pursue it. So with that in mind, I'll throw out, and I know I start to sound like an infomercial, but I have I get no kickbacks, no referrals, no nothing. Excellus Academy has been wonderful for our grandchildren because it provides enough structure. And honest to God, it doesn't take that long on it, as long as they're not being obstinate. When they're obstinate, you know, then it might take all day long. Most days, they're done within a few hours. And you, the, the little girl that's in kindergarten, right, she's done in an hour or less, which is probably about as much time as a kid that age needs to spend sitting down looking at something. And my grandson, when he gets his shit together, he's done in somewhere between an hour and a half and three hours on any given day. And that's everything. That's like, you know, they go to school and come home with hours of homework. That means that it's all done. Many times he's doing a little bit of the next day's. It's like, you want to take a day off this week? Yeah, then get one day ahead. And it doesn't take that much time. And then all the rest of the time, do with as you will. But sometimes we might put some things like, hey, you need to learn something else today. What? I don't care. Go do it. And I think that that is the most valuable thing we can educate a child with. Like, it is important to learn things. What? What are you passionate about? What do you want to do? What do you want to know more about? Because a lot of times a kid 
kids, you know, how kids are like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut. Like, six months later, what do you want to be? I, you know, I want to be a football player. You know, six months after that, uh, I want to, I, you know, me, I wanted to be like a, a guy that worked with animals, like, like Marlon Perkins or something, right? And you, you vacillate between those, and you know what happens? You start pursuing the knowledge, and you start determining what it's going to take to be successful in that, and you decide whether or not that's what you want to do. And then we tell the person that says they don't want to do that thing, oh, you're quitting. Yes, and you know what? I will always quit things that are not in my best interest to continue. Right? When I quit drinking like a fish, nobody told me that was a bad decision because I was quitting. Right? I quit drinking all together. I quit drinking like a fish. Like People are like, that's a good thing. Right? That's, that's how anything is when it's not in my best interest or your best interest or your child's best interest to do a thing. And the things that we don't want to do that make us miserable in life, why would we pursue those as careers or educational paths? You know, Amy's kids, like, you know what? Working on cars, having mechanical aptitude, learning to take things apart, putting them together, learning how to cook. There's like, there's dozens of businesses that can be started right there. There's dozens of career paths that can be started right there. If a child wants to grow up to be a mechanic, great. You can make really great money being a mechanic. And you're going to have to learn a little bit more about computers and all than you would have back when I was a kid, but... You can make really great money being a mechanic. And if you can be a mechanic, there's like a hundred other things you can do. Trust me, guess who used to be a mechanic? Me. For those of you that wonder about my military service, I was a heavy wheel vehicle diesel mechanic in the United States Army. And uh, other than breaking a few tires down to make some money when I first got out of the, the service, I've never really been a mechanic ever again, but it's paid dividends over and over and over again. And then the last thing is kind of where she let off. This idea that, like, well, now they're teenagers, now it matters. You know what that comes from? That comes from, well, your high school transcript is what the college sees. When You know what? If you're homeschooled, you can make your own transcript if you want to. All right? So anyway, with that, uh, and most homeschoolers, honestly, by the time they're in their teens, like, if they've been doing it their whole life, but I feel like 16, 17, they're taking, like, community college courses and stuff like that anyway before they're even graduated. Yeah. All right. So. I wanted to talk to you today about quote of the day. I was looking through some quotes today, and I thought, hey, I haven't talked about Richard Bach in a while. Richard Bach is an author whose work came to me, and, and, and quite fortuitously, or um, maybe more synchronistically, right out of Bach's own work at the time that it was most beneficial for me to read it as a young man. And both of the books I'm going to mention right here, uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and Confession uh, Illusions, which is also the subtitle is Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah, uh, were given to me as gifts. And those books were then passed on. And I've bought copies of those books for people because they are that influential in the way to think about life. And this comes from Illusions. And in Illusions, there's a book. It's called the Messiah's Handbook because this guy, Donald, is like this, you know, kind of like, uh, like stand in for like Christ or Buddha or something like that in our mind. What would it be like? If a Messiah came today and, and taught amongst the masses, right? And it's a guy, he flies airplanes and they barnstorm and stuff like that and they take people for rides. So don't take it too seriously. But the lessons are very serious. And in this, Richard, who his self-titled character in the book, asked Donald, how do you know all this stuff? And he's like, they give you a book. And Richard's like, a book? And You mean an actual book with all the answers? He's like, yeah, and he throws them this book. And they like, never even asked for it back. He gives them the master's book. Turns out the master's book just has a bunch of sayings in it. And Richard's like, well, how does it work? He said, well, whatever's on your mind, you think about it, you hold it in your mind, you open the book, and you'll find your answer. And Richard's like, it's a magic book. 
And Donald's like, it'll work with anything. You can do it with a Snoopy cartoon book. If, you, if your mind is in the right place, you can see the answer anywhere. And one of the times the book is opened, this is what it says. Here's the test to find whether your mission on Earth is finished. If you're alive, it isn't. And this is where I've you know, become fond of saying to you guys, if you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet. That's the redneck version of Richard's quote. If you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet. You have something left to do. And I've talked about that a lot, but what I wanted to talk to you about just for a few minutes today is why it's important. There are so many people in our society that are absolutely miserable people today. They're literally miserable. They're angry all the time. They're upset all the time. They're depressed all the time. It has to do with the food we eat, the lack of exercise, the society. We, it has a lot to do with all of that. But the number one reason is people don't realize that what they do matters anymore because they're not doing something that matters. When I say what you do matters, that's a double-edged sword. If you're doing nothing, that matters in a bad way. If you're doing the wrong thing, that matters in a bad way. If you're doing things without purpose, that matters in a bad way. It doesn't have to be, though. It's a switch. It's a decision. And the number one thing I see in young people, I'm talking like college grads, early 20s, things like that, is a lack of a sense of purpose. And they get that first job, and they want to like make a difference in the world. You know what? Your first job is not going to make a difference in the world. In fact, if you get a good job at a good company and work there for most of your life, most likely, unless you develop a cure for cancer or something as a biochemist, it's not going to make a difference in the world. Not the way that they mean it. But the person you speak to kindly at that place, who's not spoken to kindly by anybody else, that makes a difference in the world. The customers you speak to, that you treat like people instead of customers, that makes a difference in the world. The children you raise, if you raise children, will make a difference in the world. The people you help on a daily basis, connected to or not connected to your work, will make a difference in the world. The garden you plant and feed your neighbor with will make a difference in the world. The thing you start, because it's what you want to pursue with your passion, will make a difference in the world, directly and indirectly, directly in whatever it does. When you create an enterprise, it makes a difference in the world because something exists that without you would not. But the real reason it will make a difference in the world is the freedom and liberty it will bring into your life and the opening of the way that you think to where all those other things I said about how you treat people and take care of people and share with people and impact people will be magnified a hundredfold because the person who is free in their mind, their soul, and their spirit and is not tied into all these other things that are used to control people can be the true expression of themselves. The reason this quote is important, understanding that your mission on earth is not finished as long as you're alive, is so you understand the importance of having a purpose in your life, of having a mission in your life, of maybe having many purposes and many missions, and not thinking that it is necessary for that to sound like something that would be in the speech of a person who won a Nobel Prize. That raising happy, healthy children is enough of a mission for anyone. For having just a little bit of positive impact on your community 
is enough of a mission for anyone. For learning yourself so that you can do more for yourself and others around you is enough of a mission. To realize that you have a place, a purpose, something that should drive your life is important. Because otherwise, I'll tell you what you're doing, and this is what most Americans are doing, and they don't know it's what they're doing, and it's why they're so miserable. It's why they're so easy to control. You're waiting to die. We have people that by the time they're in their 20s, they have quit, they have given up, they wait the next 60 years, or more, or less, to die. They spend their whole life working for a retirement they're never going to enjoy because they're going to be too old, too tired, too fat, and too sick to enjoy it. And then when they get there, they sit around and say, I can't, I'm on a fixed income, and wait to die. I've seen it. And you see it in impoverished communities more than anywhere else. People get to a stasis where at least I'm relatively comfortable and I'm going to wait to die. It's one of the reasons I left. I looked around at the people that were supposedly successful in my small community and realized that person lives in that house. I never see them. They never come out. They never do anything. They go to work, they come home, and they sit there. And I looked at the older people that were dying and realized they had lived their whole life that way. Because no one ever told them that their mission on earth wasn't finished. They thought their mission was to sit still and wait for something to come. I can't tell you what you should be pursuing. Because that would be me living for you. I can't tell you what to pursue in your life any more than I can watch the sunrise for you and appreciate it on your behalf. You have to watch your own sunrise. And if we stand side by side at the same time, the same moment, in the same place, separated by only the distance that, that our bodies allow for, we're shoulder to shoulder, head to head, looking in the same direction, we will not see a sunrise the same way. I will see the red differently than you because of my vision. But I will see the significance different because my soul is different. So I cannot tell you what you should be pursuing. But I can tell you that in your heart lies that answer. And the test to determine whether or not your mission here on earth is finished, you can hear me, so you're alive. So it isn't. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. want to remind you guys, like I said, you can join the MSB at the beginning of the show today and help support the show. You can learn more about that at the survivalpodcast.com slash members. The other thing, and you're probably doing a lot of shopping this time of year, and probably doing most of it online if you're like me, and avoiding people in crowded places is something I was doing long before the term social distancing came around because I just don't like crowded places with crowded people and noise. And if you could order things and then they come to you or they go right to the person you're giving them to with a holiday season, then great. I got something. Now, look, I know there's a joke. It was in the movie Scrooged where he gave her the steak knives and she threw them at him, right? But knives are actually a pretty great gift, especially in our community. J.A. Hankels makes, in my opinion, some of the best kitchen knives out there, especially when you look at steak knives. They have their original version steak knives on sale for $24.95. That's 29% off. I have a full write-up on it. I have had I have two sets of these. One's about seven years old-ish. The other one, I don't know how long I've had them. I can't tell them apart, by the way. I can't be like, oh, this is the older one, this is the newer one, because they're the same. But they predate TSPC. They predate the podcast, which is over 13 years old now. And they're still like brand new. They're beautiful 
simplistic, and they, you know, at the price they're on today, they're about six bucks and change a piece. And so if you're tired of trying to cut steak with a butter knife and you want something that would be at home on a table at a good steakhouse, but you don't want it to cost too much and you want it to last, you want to get these. And if you know anybody, like if you've been to somebody's house and they made you a really great steak and you sat down and you used a steak knife and it's one of those cheap-ass ones where you start feeling the handle wiggle around and it's, yeah, maybe get them this for Christmas. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't... I know some people, like I said, like the, the movie, and they made jokes about it. You guys remember when they stapled the antlers on the mouses to make them look like, yeah, it's it's a funny movie. It's from the like 80s or early 90s. Scrooged. Uh, Bill Murray was in it. Um, but really, I, I I wouldn't be upset if somebody got me knives for Christmas. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, sign off today. I hope you enjoyed the Expert Council Q&A show. Tomorrow I'll be doing Out Back with Jack, and that is going to be episode... Uh, 2993. Uh, that will probably go live about 9 a.m. for those that are able to listen early in the morning. That is 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, that'll go out in a live feed across uh, YouTube like many of the shows do now. I know the expert counsel has a lot of editing and stuff. This one wouldn't work well as a, a, a live stream, but most of them uh, do go live stream. And the Outback with Jack can become an audience favorite. They kind of have the vibe, if you were around back when I used to do this show in my car and i just go topic to topic to topic to topic and kind of that energy level was up the whole way because I was like trying to not die while I was podcasting. Well, it's a lot more laid back, but it's still kind of like that. People are enjoying it. If you want to always be able to stay stay up in, in, in touch with live streams and things like that, follow me on social media or follow me on Telegram or something like that, or at least get on the email list. I usually, uh, like things like that, I'll put out announcements about it sometimes the day before, etc. And uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell, and then they'll send you a reminder whenever I go live. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around They said you should have a house the American way Dollar down, a dollar a month and you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Show you a better way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd You don't have to live The way they tell you to Make your own way Others will follow Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Cause nobody up there. 